0: Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Blokology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson. In today's episode, I've got an interview with the incredibly knowledgeable Alan Flanagan, the nutritional advocate. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. I hope you've enjoyed the last few episodes, the last three episodes that have been specifically on nutrition This one will be the fourth and marks the end of that little run. Not quite a season, but just a little run. And we've had some fantastic insights from Rini McGregor all about orthorexia and healthy eating. Uh, Anita Bean was just so knowledgeable about vegetarianism and talking again about the sort of the elements that make up a healthy diet and not getting too carried away with Um, individual fatty elements of diet Um, we then had a really great conversation with john sykes another gp talking about lifestyle and nutrition as part of that as well so don't forget if you want to support the podcast then one of the best ways you can do that is by signing up for my regular newsletter and you can go to www.blocology.io forward slash journal to do that Okay, so um, on to today's episode with Alan Flanagan. And Alan um, terms himself the nutritional advocate, and that's because he is actually a lawyer uh, and has been practicing until very recently. In fact, we recorded this episode a few weeks ago, and as he mentions in the interview, it's just at the point where he's giving up his law practice and he's going off to do a PhD around nutrition. And he's got some fantastic insights into nutrition, particularly thinking about the evidence, the elements that are important. And uh, some of the things he mentions around food culture and how we think about individual elements of diet and how we think about the evidence around nutrition are genuinely insightful and I think have the potential to really change the way that you engage with and think about what we eat. I will say that the Skype connection to alan was a little bit flaky when we recorded this interview there are little points where there is some background noise i've cleaned most of it up there are the occasional bit where it still um just creeps in i don't think it's terribly bad so first of all i started as ever by asking him how he got into this area as a lawyer and to tell us a little bit more about how about his background and his inspiration
1: yeah um interest i think like a lot of people at the outset um always been involved in sports rugby through school um powerlifting now and i always had an interest in nutrition from the perspective of could have helped me as a player um and as an athlete and that kind of piqued the interest and and then around kind of i guess i was in my mid 20s I started gravitating more to, there, there was a real explosion in the blogosphere of nutrition around 2008, 2007, and every time Dick and Harry that had adopted a paleo diet started some blog along paleo lines, and you could see battle lines being drawn, and I was taking in a lot of this information, but I didn't really have any ability to, um, I guess, weigh it up from an evidence perspective and that led me to start looking more specifically at research myself I kind of was digging into PubMed reading papers in a very superficial sense and not really feeling like I kind of understood them but really I was reading the introduction and the discussion as opposed to the methodology and 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 uh, the results and that just kind of piqued my interest and I started a formal process of education, um, really more out of personal interest, not necessarily knowing where it would go. So I started an MSc and during the course of that process, things really accelerated and I kind of quite quickly realized that what I was originally doing just as a personal academic pursuit was fast becoming an interest that I wanted to kind of pursue more of. Um, And now I'm at that crossroads where I've now officially left law. Actually, Friday was my last day. And I'm starting a PhD full-time at the University of Surrey on the 10th of Jan.
0: Right. Wow. Because I knew you're obviously a practicing lawyer, but I didn't realize that you were transitioning away from that
1: transitioning out so I've been 10 years as a practicing lawyer and had always intended to keep my nutrition education as my kind of side personal hobby but I did know that if there was anything that I would leave it for it would be a kind of route into searching and quite serendipitously that opportunity presented itself for a project that I really couldn't say no to and I I weighed it all up and, you know, I'll I'll always have the benefit of having 10 years practice behind me. And I think it gives me a bit of a unique skill set when it comes to mm, certainly nutrition Um, as an area. um, I don't really have any interest. I never had in being a nutritionist in a practice sense. But I think that one thing that we're lacking generally right now is good science communicators. And certainly I think nutrition could do with, with some of that. And that's really where I'd like to take that skill set from my kind of, you know, experience as a barrister and translate that perhaps into something that helps um, steer the conversation towards more evidence-based lines in nutrition. And I think, you know, there's a fairly problematic level of noise in nutrition right now. And it's not just in the populist space. We're seeing it within evidence based modalities. And certainly the recent surge of interest within medicine for nutrition has come with a lot of teething problems at the start as more kind of faddy type, um, you know, ideas are are perpetuating, um, within it. So it's, it's we're, we're at a kind of important time where the ability to effectively communicate nutrition research. Um, I think is, 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 is quite important.
0: Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, we must dive into this a little bit because I think you're absolutely right. Then more than any area that we see across our lifestyle, you know, when you think about physical activity, all the other things people are doing, mental health, nutrition seems to be cursed in some, you know, it seems to have, it really seems to have hit some roadblocks in terms of effectively getting across the message to people. And there's all sorts of reasons related to the evidence and stuff we can talk about, about why that might be. And I guess more than anything, it's the, one of those areas that the the public feel conflicted about that they get conflicting messages and it results in a kind of paralysis on in, in terms of action for a lot of people
1: and i think that there's 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 multiple levels to that um in the first instance we're living in the information age so there is going to be access to information um that someone can have at the tip of their fingers and there is no ability to regulate. And I'm not saying you know, I'm not going Orwellian on this. Freedom of speech is important and the information age comes with its value, but its value also has its potential downsides. Uh, and obviously, when it comes to health related issues, that is the proliferation of self-proclaimed experts and gurus. And all you have to do really is have a compelling narrative. Um, have some good marketing skills for a website or an Instagram page. And an individual can generate an enormous amount of influence and reach and following and is then able to disseminate incorrect messages or messages that lack context or messages that are misleading. So there's confusion at that level. Then there's confusion within the kind of more public health space where There's all of these kind of fairly ridiculous criticisms of things like government guidelines and, well, they're all wrong. And that's the reason we have conditions that we do now, chronic lifestyle disease. Um, And and we can get into that, but that's just a farcical narrative. Um, You know, the idea that guidelines have been somewhat implicated in any of these issues is impossible to sustain when we look at the socioeconomic and environmental factors that have really been driving these issues at a population level um and then of course you have the relative disconnect traditionally that academics have academics don't like being in the public light they don't like getting in the fight and they're traditionally reluctant to have a presence you know on social media or in just the general popular media so they're kind of sitting in academia, uh, disgruntled about what the conversations are happening at a population level, but but not really getting involved. And then within medicine, you'll have charismatic figures, um, you know, that come along with a, a fairly compelling narrative that's fundamentally misconceived. But because they're, for example, a consultant cardiologist, they generate a huge amount of authority bias that will orientate themselves towards that particular person's message, notwithstanding that there are a multiplicity of nutrition professionals and academics in the background saying, no, everything he says is wrong. <laughs> so, so we have confusion at the public level. We have confusion within medicine. We have confusion at the level of public health in terms of uh, – and that's where we really see the paralysis is at the public health level and what, what messages we should be getting out to the population. Um and I think what we need is a kind of relative uniform establishment of what actually constitutes the, the the best available evidence that we have that's actionable now. Um and that's more so for I think for clinical practice and for people in primary care. Public health population level need to be having really are nothing to do with nutrition, ironically. They're policy issues, they're regulatory issues. We need to change the food environment in people's favor. And those issues are going to come upstream, not downstream. And and right now, all of our public health focus still targets the individual and expects individual responsibility in a food environment without modifying that environment in their favor. Um, And that's hugely problematic. And, you know, if you look at any statistics for wealth disparity, the countries with the biggest issues in chronic lifestyle disease are all the countries with the greatest wealth disparity gaps mm. between the highest quintile of earners and the lowest. And that's the UK, Australia, the United States and Ireland.
0: Yeah. Oh, crikey, Alan. You must have, you're, there's about 50 different full-time research careers you just threw into that lot there some absolutely fascinating stuff as well uh, let me pick out a couple of them for just working backwards the food environment thing is something i feel very strongly about and i kind of and that is completely neglected that it's almost impossible to you know whether you're talking about managing weight or kind of living healthily in the current environment we live in the way that food's presented to us constantly it's you know, the way that kind of you know the, the thoughts about ego depletion and how much you've how willpower we all have as being a kind of mm-hmm. a finite commodity that when you're getting mm-hmm. constantly upsold when you're getting food pressed in, that kind of is that's where public health have apparently done very little so far i've made to be fair they've made very little impression so far i think the the cmo the chief medical officer even yesterday was in their paper saying there had to be a tax on um high sugar products and other things and the food industry hasn't really gone along with this yet but i do think but even wider than just the industries it's just the kind of the the high streets we walk around in in the cafes and the all those aspects are all part of that so i I think that's an absolutely fascinating area to go into and you're probably right that that they're the kind of upstream interventions that public health need to be looking at and
1: you know there's a couple of interesting uh, areas um, or observations that emerge from a, a, an environmental focus. The first, I think, is that um, voluntary regulation doesn't work. And we learned that from direct experience in the UK, whereby there was, uh, as an example of this, in 2012, a scheme was brought in called the Responsibility Deal and that was a voluntary opt-in scheme where, if any industry player opted in, they would subject themselves to reformulation of food products and other kind of, you know, kind of uh, um, modifications of of their food products, re- reductions in, for example, salt or fat, and these these kind of things. And uh, they all gave it the thumbs up in principle, uh, and nobody opted in. Um, and when we look at research from the kind of behavioral economic side of things, we know why that is. And most of the, you know, schemes that tend to work in this sense are mandatory. Um, Germany's environmental tax, it was an interesting example of this from there where Germany wanted to bring in an environmental tax um and they polled populations uh before they brought it in and got this overwhelming, you know, 90% of people were for this environmental levy uh and so they brought it in uh, and nobody opted in so what they then did was they were like well that there's a disconnect there between the 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 intent that people had for it and their ability to opt in so they just reframed how they did it and they voluntarily or they mandatorily co-opted everybody into it and if you didn't like it that much you could opt out yeah uh the opt-out rate was, was, was quite low in the end. And again, that reflected the fact that people were ultimately for it. So what we've really learned is that mandatory regulation is the way to go. The other thing that benefits industry from a mandatory regulation perspective is that it puts them all on the same playing field. Part of the, the reason why voluntary schemes don't work is because why would you hamper yourself uh, on a competition level relative to other industry players that maybe are in your same area? So mandatory regulation, if we're saying we're going to reduce the fat content of certain popular foods, like muffins, for example, then Cuisine de France are at the same level as another producer, right? So mandatory regulation works because it puts them all on the same playing field. And then the second thing we need to look at is what you really see as drivers of chronic issues, lifestyle-related disease is an increase in energy availability in the food supply. That's probably the one thing we could say is perhaps causative. So we need to reduce energy or availability to that access, you know, to that energy, or sorry, access to that availability. And things that have been potentially encouraging in that respect are, for example, you have non-food retail uh, outlets like pennies uh, or TK Maxx and when you get to the checkout points, they have these displays of family-packed sizes of chocolates and sweets and things like that. They're not even food retailers, right? They're, they're, they're clothing stores that are increasing an opportunity to eat hyper-palatable junk foods, uh, and there's no reason for them to be there. So a smack ban of those kind of uh, opportunities uh, would be quite a beneficial intervention and is something that is being discussed. Reframing the architecture of um, drinks displays in spars, there was an interesting study in the UK which altered the architecture of like a spar or a centra so that within arm's reach and, and eye level was non-calorically sweetened drinks or or water. Um, and they reduced the sale of, of sugar sweetened drinks by 30% in a month. Because they were all up top or down the bottom, and people genuinely <laughs> aren't even bothered reaching down to get. So little behavioural nudges like that mm-hmm. can be beneficial, and reducing the energy supply uh, that's 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 in our food environment um, could be very beneficial. And reformulation is probably a good step to that. I do have reservations about the sugar tax. I think it's a relatively populist move by governments to make it seem like they're taking action on industry when fundamentally all of the evidence that accumulated from other jurisdictions that had piloted sugar taxes suggested that it needed to be about 20 percent. to really make a hit in industry pockets, most like the UK have brought in what a 5 to 10 percent tax. So really, it's just a case of making it look like there's hard action being taken, but fundamentally, industry are just capable of writing the check and absorbing the levy. Yeah. So it's not really there are there is some evidence that reformulation has occurred in some companies, but I, I think you know it doesn't address the full spectrum of hyperpalatable foods that tend to not just be high in sugar alone, but high in a combination of fat, sugar, and sodium. So I think unless we're addressing that area of hyper-palatable food, just taxing sugar drinks alone won't do much.
0: Yeah, I, I really I think the behavioral economics thing seems really key as well in terms of evidence that hasn't been exploited particularly. You know, behavioral economics is something as a medical student or as a doctor you learn nothing about, but is an absolutely key feature of the way people behave. I, I was recently reading, reading William Thaler's book um, Misbehaving, so he was one of the original kind of architects of this whole behavioral economics field, uh, and there's so much in there. And I know he was involved in the, what was known as the Nudge Unit down in Whitehall in the UK. Um, a few years ago and um, i think all that kind of science and you know the sociological behavior and psychological sort of impacts that exist they're absolutely key and you might be right there was a, it, something like the sugar tax is then is relatively a blunt instrument which they just absorb actually just changing the way people behave and even on little things i know you notice if difference. like going to say like you, t- you talk about uh, go to france for example you never see counters of sweets or there's much less availability of those kind of High, you know, super junk foody, high-calorie snacks Mm -hmm. available anywhere Mm -hmm. in somewhere like France. It's a completely different landscape in terms of the environment people are living in.
1: Yeah, and they have a different food culture as Mm -hmm. well. I think that food culture is a really underappreciated element of why we 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 have some of these issues magnified in certain countries more than others. Um, In if you look at the UK and the US, for example. What you typically see as, as, as I guess, environmental or soci- sociological issues is a decrease in energy consumed within the home, increasing proportions of energy consumed away from the home. What that means ultimately is that people have very little control over the composition of the foods that they eat. Mm. And that means that the average intake of someone eating that type of diet in the UK population essentially mirrors that of someone eating it in a poor suburb of, uh, you know, Brisbane or a poor suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. The composition of their diet is pretty much the same in terms of its fat content, its percentage of energy from fat, its sugar percentage, uh, its refined carbohydrate intake, its fibre intake, and that's because what we've created from the industry, uh, you know, the, the kind of reliance on industry as our food provider, relatively homogenous global diets. Uh, in in Western developed countries, um, and you know, in the UK, there's 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 other factors that play with as well, like the, um, the tendency to consume a majority of energy intake later in the day. So up to forty six percent of people's, nearly half of people's daily energy in the UK comes after four pm. Um, so these issues are all cultural uh, and sociological, and you see the opposite in countries like the nordic countries and france where uh, family meals are still an important part of food and uh, of the food uh, landscape and um, where the main meal is typically consumed in the middle of the day um and there's still a more significant contribution of energy coming within the home indicating a degree of food preparation skills are still preserved whereas Particularly in, in lower socio economic demographics in um, you know in, in, in the UK the US and other kind of um, Western developed countries, what you'll typically see is there's a time barrier and there's a food preparation skills barrier, um, and both of them mean that there is a reliance on industry. Yes. Yeah. Um, where you get your
0: food from it's absolutely fascinating and you've even two things you've suggested there that have completely changed the way you think about nutrition it's not about the endless debates about you know proportions of protein carbohydrates fat and actually that food culture just the the, the eating at home or away from home as soon as you, as soon as I get, as soon as you mentioned that I hadn't really thought of it in that context before mm. but actually suddenly that makes a massive difference to all sorts of yeah. ways that you consume food
1: it's why the narratives and the debates in nutrition now about carbs versus fat infuriates me beyond measure <laughs> and you've got all of these privileged middle class wealthy doctors and nutrition professionals and dietitians arguing over the fat content and composition of a diet or whether we should be eating carbs while in poverty stricken areas we have chronic lifestyle disease at its highest and most at risk vulnerable groups and these considerations are utterly irrelevant to that demographic. Um, and I find it a really classist um, position and argument to, to get involved in. And bottom line is, if you're a GP in a, a socially deprived area, you know what? What exactly is this debate helping you to tell your patients? You know, yeah. And people need to be able to have advice that helps them in the in the environment that they are in and until we have policy driven interventions that can change that environment then this is all a bit of a sick joke on humanity unfortunately (laughs) so we're helping at at, at, at the way i see it right now the job of primary care physicians is to particularly in socially deprived areas we need to help people where they're at right now uh, and that is not going to be a kale smoothie, um, you know, or chia seeds in the porridge.
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Although, that, I mean, I've had, I've expressed to a few, I've chatted to a few nutritionists recently, and other people, I've expressed reservations about the whole lifestyle medicine thing in terms of the medical profession because of. And I, I have asked the last few times, and in fact, I had John Sykes on. Just, I was chatting to John Sykes just recently, who's the British involved in the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, and I asked him specifically the concerns about um how British, this society, last time, it's the quinoa and kale crowd. It's that kind of approach that it's got nothing to do with, you know, kind of, and it won't do anything to address health inequality, which I already mentioned right at the start there. We've got some of the biggest disparities in the world, in the richest nations, and yet we've still got the biggest gaps. And that's inexcusable. And that should be the number one priority of all healthcare professionals. Anybody who's interested in society, full stop, should be doing everything we can, not to make ourselves richer or the top half more Um, healthy we should be narrowing the gap
1: i think i think we would almost be better if these movements like lifestyle medicine you know mobilizing people of influence within society turned our attention towards being more of a think tank to lobby for policy reform (laughs) because the easiest way Mm -hmm. to solve these problems is to raise the standard of living across the board and close wealth inequalities but you know that's a political conversation unfortunately John's a good mate of mine and, you know, I've been involved in the SLM for the last year. And, you know, we, we have had a lot of hard conversations about the whole lifestyle medicine thing and the limits of it. Um, for me, it's been a, a positive and negative experience insofar as it's positive that there are so many medical professionals taking an interest in being able to give, you know, some basic lifestyle advice. Like some people really can just do with you know going to park run on the weekend and and maybe just Mm. eating a few more vegetables or servings of fruit during the week like these these little things really do make a big difference so on the one hand you have this really positive um you know step in that direction my reservation was always that certainly at the start the people that were coming in to talk about nutrition weren't even in the field. They were like other, other docs and stuff that I used to. So, you know, eventually we, you know, we organized a couple of conferences. John was amazing in putting together a nutrition by the experts conference in May, which over a hundred doctors attended and was all academics in their fields. And it was brilliant. And then, but the lifestyle medicine thing does worry me as well, because it's an area where almost like putting the word functional in front of medicine in America has allowed people to go off the reservation with some really unevidence-based and woo concepts. You do see a little bit of that creeping into the lifestyle medicine as well. Um, I had a com- I, I was speaking at a BSLM conference in October, and uh, one of the attendees you know, basically declared that um, you know artificial sweeteners were worse than Coke, which was cancer in a can. You know, and these kind of fatty ideas that just and 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 again, coming back to this idea of meeting people where they're at. Thank, God, I was there with with a, a King's diabetes academic, <laughs> and we were and the, the way we framed it was, look, you're in a socially deprived area, and you have someone in your clinic who's drinking two liters of Coke a day, you need to understand that it is going to be a beneficial intervention for that person to swap that Coke for Diet Coke and that they're more likely to swap that Coke for Diet Coke than they are swap that Coke for water. And if you have it in your head that artificial sweeteners are worse than cancer, which was the statement, you're you're going to fail to put in place good practical advice for someone that is going to wipe away 150 grams of sugar a day and, and, and whatever amount of calories are in two liters of Coke. So I think we need some practical. Lifestyle medicine, to me, is, should be the antithesis of functional medicine. Functional medicine is going off the reservation with all these ridiculous concepts about turmeric and anti-inflammatories and probiotics. Lifestyle medicine should be about going to park run, getting a bit more fresh air, getting a bit more sleep and eating a bit more fruit during the week and these kind of simple basic things that anyone could have access to regardless of where they're at in the income spectrum
0: yeah um interesting because i kind of had shied away from the bslm and um i think it was clear that john and people like yourself are having these discussions and i kind of sort of think well maybe i should get more involved and it's better to be inside the tent you know rather than outside the tent pissing in yeah so there's kind of that kind of thing and there's almost nobody there that is ill meaning and they've all got this kind of and they're just a little bit enthused by trying to take medicine away from its kind of super hyper pharmacy orientated you know diseases equal drugs um kind of approach, which is very laudable. But there is there are risks with it as well, aren't there, in terms of deepening inequalities?
1: Yeah, there are. And I think it's just important that we're aware of them. And I think that for for lifestyle medicine as a general concept, it's it's certainly not um, thus far it's 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 more positives than and the the kind of the the woo kind of unevidence- based voices are relatively minor in it so far, and that's why I was so keen to to get involved you know yeah. from the nutrition perspective i was just hammering john i was like get me in the game <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> i'd love to see them actually I, I love the idea of them having a sort of think tank wing to it as well though they should have a kind of you know that kind of where they're trying just the, what that job is to look at he- evidence based more public healthy policies and actually go a behavioral economics unit to the BS- bslm would be that kind of thing would be I'd, be I'd be incredible
1: be able to you know produce white papers and help influence policy upstream this is particularly because if it's GP led with, with, you know, with then, you know, nutrition academics involved, like we've got a really potent capacity to be able to say, hey, look, like this is what people are seeing on the ground. This is how we think we could shape that. Um, I think we need to think more about that as opposed to just creating an echo chamber. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, that's the lawyer side of me kicking in now <laughs> thinking, yeah, you know, well- like. Get into the advocacy side of things and and try and influence at that level.
0: Well, I was thinking that the advocacy advocacy is a good word because obviously you use it in a specific lawyerly barrister context. But advocacy, yeah. there's actually one of the books I've got sitting on my shelf is about public health advocacy, and it's all about trying to manipulate and recognise that there there's a political game to be played. And though you know you have to infu- if you're trying to influence policy, then of course that's a political game by mm. nature that yeah. you um, and that's that's the way to really. And it's one of the frustrations I have teaching medical students is that they're all obsessed with the individual and the ego and you get a kind of an ego bump from being the doctor that looks after a patient but actually if you really wanted to come in and help people and help you know like you proclaimed in your initial application and everyone does they just want to be there to help people you would be a public health doctor almost certainly or maybe even you perhaps arguably might be in politics actually really trying to change policy is really where the real juice is in terms of influencing long-term health
1: that's it. And I think, you know, the more we start to accept that mobilizing towards that kind of end will be more beneficial. It's a combination, right? It's not one or the other. We do need to continue to educate. We do need to have conferences like we had in May or the other one at the end of October, um, where myself and 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 Dr. Nicola Guess, who's a, a diabetes researcher at King, spoke about General kind of nutrition, best practice, and diabetes—you know that that that's hugely valuable at the education level because you've got 150 people in primary care practice who walk out of that knowing that they don't need to tell patients to you know dump the <laughs> dump the butter in their coffee and other kind of nonsense kind of paradigms. You know, cut, <laughs> cut all carbs and th- these kind of uh, these kind of fads that have crept into to, to some areas. Um, so. You know, that's po- important, but it's also important that as people that are on the grounds facing people in society every day, um, that that combines with the influence that a profession like medicine and academia have to go upstream as well and help to shape things from a perspective of both evidence and experience.
0: Yeah. I am I think you're right and there's a that curse of knowledge thing is really important there's a risk that actually because you know how to live a healthy lifestyle doesn't necessarily mean or you've got a good idea of what the principles are and that's the thing about doctors and that's the problem that then you know you become a doctor and you're you know you're instantly that kind of of a certain stratum in society and actually losing the ability to speak to people who who do, do still drink several liters of coke every single day and recognizing the fact that that was just something that would be unimaginable to me amino to do that yeah. I, I couldn't I, and but yet actually so people still do it and they don't they don't necessarily do it because they're stupid or no. anything like that it's just a different they're, yeah. they're at a different point
1: that's, that's such a key point to make um this the stupid thing because a lot of the narratives about what we need to do now to help improve population health center around education and i have a bit of a problem with the education narrative because it assumes that people in low socioeconomic areas are stupid and don't know that fruits and vegetables are good for them. And that's that's problematically classist, and it's simply not the case. People, I, I think you line 10 people up against a wall, irrespective of background, nine of them are going to know fruits and vegetables are good for them, certainly eight. And the reasons why they can't or un, are unable to implement those that knowledge is totally disconnected from having it and it's interesting you know just sticking with that soda example me, me and uh, myself and, and john sykes were actually in a store in london on the way to the conference in october and there was two laborers and it was probably about eight in the morning and they were obviously on the way to the site they were working on and one of them picked up a two liter bottle of phantom and genuinely said, John couldn't stop talking about this afterwards, genuinely said, turned around to his mate and said, that'll keep me hydrated for the day. <laughs> like, so in his head, he's thinking hydration. Mm. He's picked two liters of Fanta. So, you know, that, that, is where, that is where there is an element of the education thing. But to assume that it's coming from a place of people just not giving a shit about their health is is such a problematic position to, to adopt and to assume. So education is important, but it's not going to be the game changer. You know, telling people, oh, fruits and vegetables are good for you. Like, are you solving the barrier of single parent households? Are you solving the barrier of two jobs? Are you solving the barrier of time? And even if you make There's a a, a UK researcher who who did some really interesting research in around 2007, 2008 looking at this issue. And one of the, one of the models was, you know, if we subsidize fruits and vegetables in low income areas from, say, a tax, would it go to any use? And the ultimate conclusion was well intended as that is, people, uh, you know, from uh, that are in kind of socially deprived areas don't spend enough time in food preparation for that whole, oh, you've more vegetables available to make a difference. So it's not about knowledge. It's not about education. It's about social and economic and environmental factors that prevent the implementation of that knowledge. Um, They're the problems we need to solve, not just telling people that spinach is good for them.
0: Yeah, or or even worse than that, you know, kind of deifying certain foods as superfoods. And so they then become that you're not healthy. And that kind of, I know that there's been lots of talk about that sort of clean eating orthorexia phenomenon in recent years as well. But so that there is still very, that's, I think some of that might have calmed down a little bit from that kind of complete peak of superfood fad, faddiness. But there's definitely still that there are certain foods that you have to be eating and certain, um, uh, which which you know which are a little bit better than others.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it it has calmed. I think it had a crest of a wave. I think it calmed because there was a genuine pushback from. I was kind of having a, a kind of comment interaction with a few nutritionists on Instagram, kind of reason, and you know one of the points was made about this idea of good or bad foods because it's Christmas time, right? And there's a lot of food demonization and other kind of fear mongering that goes on. Um, and one of them made the point that, well, I feel like, you know, dieticians and nutritionists have done a really good job of removing food fear over the last few years. And I, I do agree with that. I think generally, or like that tendency to view foods as good or bad has been um, successfully combated to a degree, to a degree. But now, what you have in lieu of that is diet patterns that identify and an individuals. Now, don't necessarily identify along kind of cultural lines as much as they identify along lifestyle lines. So if you have people in that identifies, you know, the, as vegan or low carb or whatever, we have this whole kind of food fear thing repackaged away from a simple good or bad into a more well we don't eat these foods because and they have a narrative about why it's bad for their health um so it's still there it's kind of just repackaged into oh well this is a a lifestyle not a diet right um and so there's there there is still work to do to try and kind of particularly now the prevalence of carbophobia is um Mm. Uh, is 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 just replaced you know fat phobia so we, we we tend to go from extremes and there's a line i use regularly which is that the pendulum swings in nutrition are extreme and it never comes back into the middle so we're kind of there right now and i think it is important that we particularly for healthcare professionals we just nip it in the bud because we create more barriers for people like we were just talking about if we have ideas that some foods they should be consuming or are better or worse than others actually if you look at the risk reductions in epidemiology from fruit and vegetable consumption even just one serving of, of cruciferous veg a week can have a beneficial impact on you know all cause mortality cardiovascular and cardiovascular and and cancer outcomes so we need to be taking the dose element here somewhat seriously and saying, listen, the tiniest, the tiniest increase in someone's fruit and veg consumption can really make a big difference over time. And this idea of dietary overhaul being the only way forward well you're going from eating a typical Western diet of processed and packaged foods and your breakfast is some sugary cereal and milk and your lunch is burger king and dinner is whatever a chipper uh you know cod and chips um and there's just biscuits and tea pepper throughout the day that's that's not swapping overnight into a wholesale overhaul you know so it's it's small thing what, what can we do for that person today one change that's going to make a difference and yeah. then we'll
0: yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's the, I've got a massive problem with that. I've always thought that was a problem with veganism is that, and it, but you've seen it happen more and more and vegetarianism and other a- a aspects are creeping into it. The veganism always looked unobtainable for the vast majority of the population because they were held up as this sort of paragon diet. There was a strong moral element attached to it, certainly in the past, and there certainly isn't a lot of quarters yes. at the moment. But if you're, and, it's a, and I think I said in another podcast recently, it's like holding up Mo Farah as an example of how to be physically active. <laughs> that it, it's it's just completely you know it doesn't it does someone doesn't look at mo far and go i'm going to be him or, i'm going to go yeah. out for a jog they just think oh that's for someone else that's not for me and you I don't really, actually don't ever know. move anybody around that kind of cycle that change a little bit and mm. as you say it, it, there's a it's a dose response um, element to this that so you only actually need to increase a little to get benefits and on a public health scale You know, as you say, if you gave everybody an extra portion of fruit and veg a day in the UK, one portion of fruit and veg, that would have a monumental effect on a a population basis.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I I love that Mo Farah analogy. I think it's brilliant. Um, And again, you know, it does tie back to the kind of class elements. I do think, you know, low carb and veganism are two diet patterns that have strong... Kind of moral and essentially religious undertones to them um, certainly veganism itself does have a moral and ethical uh, genesis uh, and I always say that that's totally fine what, what's not okay is when we get into the place of trying to impose that framework um, onto others um and, and that's, you know, if you look at the recent survey in the UK that looked at the reduction in meat consumption, mm. the primary reason is environmental. Mm. You know, as an anecdote, I've, I've drastically reduced my meat consumption over the last year to 18 months. And my only consideration is environmental. Like, you know, no offense to, to, to anyone listening that is vegan on a moral or ethical standpoint, but I don't have an issue with killing animals and and eating them like i think it's fairly consistent with evolutionary biology not that that's a justification for now but that's not where my where where my issue is and the problem with 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 a lot of the conversations uh, within that space is people are assuming that that's going to motivate people to to lower animal consumption if they just like put up gory pictures of a concentrated animal feeding unit in brazil it's like i don't endorse that system you know i can consume dairy and not endorse poor husbandry practices that idea that once you are by default consuming animal produce means you endorse a system of utter cruelty i think shies and 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 really kind of puts the back up you know people that do consume animal produce when in fact if we reframed that conversation towards listen the evidence for an environmental benefit to reducing animal consumption is fairly overwhelming everyone's concerned about the environment so you know and the other thing then is that it does, again, tie back to the social economic stuff. I have the luxury if I want to consume some, if I want to have venison for dinner, I have the luxury and the means to go to a local butcher and pick up something that I know came from, you know, like the mountains. <laughs> um, I, I have that luxury. I have that means, and I'm aware that I do. When we look at really the, the demand for meat on a global level, it's really servicing the industry and, and, and fast food. And so I think we need to be careful not to be too critical of meat consumption. If people are eating KFC and Burger King because they're in an environment where that is literally what is going to be available, then there is a limit to how much we can kind of, um, you know, cr- criticize uh, the lack of options because it's the lack of options. That's, that's problematic. And, um, and ultimately, veganism is a luxury of the 20th and 21st century. Um, and it's also a luxury of means to really do the diet well. And the the, the selling of it as a solution for population health, both, you know, and, and it's billed as not only the solution to chronic disease, but also the, the planetary health issues is simply not the case. And even I think, you know... I've heard some very articulate vegans that are, that are in that area of planetary health speak on the issue and they'll even acknowledge it's, it's, it's not the solution, you know? So, yeah. um, these things are nuanced. I think we need to move away from the battle lines that are drawn along moral lines in nutrition. Now we really need to, to, to kind of end those those conversations
0: yeah so interestingly i want to think just to go back to one thing you said about that sort of is that it's worth just chatting for a few minutes about that n equals one phenomenon that exists which is that overwhelming I mean, narratives are good stories are good we're all sort of probably hardwired as human beings to enjoy stories mm-hmm. to respond to them emotionally for them to have an impact on us. But there is a yeah. fundamental problem with that N equals one single story anecdote versus yeah. the kind of, and nutritional evidence seems to have a bigger gap than most about this, perhaps because it's so hard to do randomized controlled trials and it relies more on bigger uh, epidemiological studies. But it uh, seems you, to be particularly susceptible to this N equals one versus the evidence uh, challenge.
1: You've opened a can of worms for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of my big, big, big passions in this whole space is food is not medicine um what do i mean by that we have the evolution of an evidence-based model that evolved to test drugs it evolved to test medical interventions a versus b the randomized control trial model is based off certain presuppositions For example, you can achieve uniformity in the population, so they're exchangeable at the subgroup level that you're studying, that the treatment is well-defined, that the placebo is well-defined, and and none of those, in fact, apply to nutrition. And so if 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 the fundamental presuppositions from a scientific perspective of the RCT model can't be fulfilled by the study of food then it means there's no internal or external validity to the conclusions <laughs> from, that, <laughs> from that model. Um, we've used purely explanatory trial designs in the RCT model in nutrition. We need to move probably to more pragmatic trial designs that are more applicable at a population level. And the gaps in nutrition are to a degree over-exaggerated by people who want to exploit the fact that there are gray areas or nuances to mount spurious claims one of the big misconceptions is that nutritional epidemiology is flaky i think that within medicine that is a perception because medicine as a field has been scarred by one or two incidences perhaps the most you know the best known example would be the hrt issue and cardiovascular disease and that was a real bite on the ass in a, in a real disconnect between epidemiology and what subsequently emerged in 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 control trials but actually nutritional epidemiology if you really scrutinize it has quite a remarkable track record of broad observations being relatively supported by mechanistic work in rcts whether that is unsaturated fats being more beneficial than saturated whether that is dietary fiber intake, whether that's fruit and vegetable consumption um, and the dose response therein, so, or whether it's processed meat consumption and colorectal cancer. Nutritional epidemiology, its track record warrants more confidence than people put in it. We cannot do large long-term RCTs in nutrition. They're behavioral trials in nature. So the prospective cohort study design is the only model that we have that can investigate long-term diet disease relationships. And the application of the biomedical style of RCT to, to food has been really problematic because we don't study isolated nutrients, we, well, we have been, but we don't eat isolated nu- nutrients. And and in the reductionist model, we've really missed the forest for the trees with, some, with the study of some... Um, you know, compounds, because we've been looking at them outside of the context in which they're consumed in a diet and the the wider diet pattern as a whole. So for me, one of the issues with gaps in nutrition is not so much that vitamin E is a classic example of this, just so I can kind of illustrate this for listeners. If you look at epidemiology of dietary vitamin E intake, you see really strong associations with reduced risk of cardiovascular disease and also neurological disease, dementia, and Alzheimer's. And there are mechanisms that we could look at that support that. It stops LDL oxidation. um, It has a couple of important roles in in neurological health and is the primary fat-soluble antioxidant that we have. So really important kind of nutrient across the board. But dietary intake of vitamin E means a lot of vegetable oil, like so, you know, rapeseed oil, nut consumption, seeds, fish consumption. So looking at it at the level of food, we can see that it would be a diet pattern that has other beneficial components to it as well, fiber, other micronutrients. Vitamin E also as a structure is eight different compounds, eight different isomers and all of the trials then so people looked at this and said right let's do let's do interventions with vitamin E you know cardiovascular diseases an endpoint you know a myocardial infarction or otherwise but we don't know a lot about vitamin E as a whole we know a lot about two of those isomers alpha and gamma tocopherol most supplements were only ever alpha tocopherol so all of these large expensive rcts investigated the effects of supplemental vitamin E on cardiovascular disease for example and found nothing and the conclusion, therefore, from that, because of the biomedical emphasis, only RCTs can show causation, was that, well, vitamin E has no role. <laughs> it's an erroneous conclusion to come to because it assumes that this nutrient has no role in health or disease. It's a farcical <laughs> proposition, actually, if we think <laughs> about it in that sense. And But that ends up in this, this particular nutrient being dismissed because RCTs didn't find an effect. So there are fundamental limitations to the biomedical model applied to nutrition as a field of science. And this is one of my big advocacy points that I'm on a high horse about, because unless we evolve this model, we'll continue to generate pretty poor results from RCTs. So we actually need to change the manner in which we do RCTs in nutrition and keep improving methodology for long-term prospective cohort studies. But the gaps in the literature are less than people would think. There are usually gaps that are explo- exploited. Um, most recently, I think the exploitation has been coming from advocates of very low carb, high animal fat diets, um, and they've been, you know, the ones that have been trying to paint epidemiology as um, totally un- untrustworthy, uh, RCTs as as useless, uh, and all of this because it suits their narrative of. We're totally wrong and everyone should be eating more animal fat, not less. Mm. Ah.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think there is a fascinating kind of. It's really interesting because that I've moved away from that. I was a bit of a skeptic back maybe a decade ago. Much more spent my time kicking the ass of complementary medicines whenever I could, and moved away from it because I felt it felt far too. It did feel too reductionist, and I became really uncomfortable with it, and uncomfortable with it in the context of speaking to patients as well, where things are always a bit more complicated. Yeah, but that. But one of those things that they always hold up is that gold standard of the RCT. And it isn't, it clearly doesn't work for everything. And it clearly, you know, we never had an RCT showing that smoking killed people, which is a good example. There was never an RCT for that, but no one's ever going to argue about the causation there either. So it's perfectly possible to do really good science, really get really good evidence around nutrition and using the existing epidemiological kind of processes. It just, they maybe need a bit of manipulation, particularly, particularly for this field, but yeah. you can't throw them out there. I mean, and the example yeah. of processed meat is also a really good one. Actually, yeah. there's really damn good evidence now that processed meat causes cancer. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. But that doesn't seem to have penetrated into the public consciousness okay. terribly well.
1: We have the same with trans fats. Trans fats mm. have been banned, mostly in some countries banned, or removed from the food supply voluntarily so that they're on average less than 1% of, 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 of energy intake, fat intake. And that has been entirely based off observational epidemiology combined with some mechanistic work. There's been no RCTs in that respect. Colorectal cancer process meat another example of that. And the problem is what people assume to be causation or what they think causation means. And actually, an RCT can demonstrate causation, sure. But that's not necessarily how we arrive at causation as a standard of proof. So in epidemiology, we can infer causation from using things like the Bradford Hill criteria, which were used in the in the evidential considerations for smoking. So we're happy that smoking causes cancer, but what we mean by that is we have inferred that smoking causally increases risk. Uh, and so people, I, I've kind of I wrote a big article about this kind of recently for for a site in the states and. Um, you know, one of the issues that we were talking about was it, people don't understand standards proof, I think. Uh, and maybe that's also my lawyer head kicking in. But, you know, you'll, you'll see people who you know demand a certain level of proof. I mean, there's one commentator in the UK, an independent researcher, and she's highly problematic with her views on nutrition and, and health generally. But she came out a couple of years ago and said that the dietary guidelines were flawed because they weren't based on RCTs. I mean, what a farcical proposition! Because public health policy is routinely based on epidemiology. Because if it wasn't, we wouldn't have public health policy. Vaccination success, observational smoking, observational trans fats, observe. You know, so we use observational epidemiology to make timely policy recommendations all of the time. And what you typically notice in the criticism of it, or people who say, "Well, you don't have evidence of that. Show me where there's an RCT." They're typically using that as a kind of playground style. I know you are. You said you are, but what am I? To simply navigate the fact, to simply navigate the fact that the the position they're trying to mount is relatively spurious, and they're just trying to throw mud against the wall and see what sticks
0: yeah it shows a kind of it's a fairly limited understanding you know you know all medical yeah. students get taught the Bradford Hill criterion it's so you know there and even there's always there are all levels of subtlety and nuance within that that you have to carry yeah. all the way down through as well. One quick thing about I'm still scandalized that trans fats aren't known about widely and I think they still enter the food chain in the u k in certain supermarkets is that's is that actually do you know it's actually stopped It hasn't stopped,
1: but in the UK, it is, bar the tiniest subset, it has been reduced in the UK overall to less than 1%. So that that target has been achieved voluntarily. Um, So for the most part, the UK population is now, again, without even realizing it themselves, um, these were policy-based interventions, but for the most part, the UK population is under that 1% threshold for trans fats. So it's not really it's almost a moot point when we look at it now in terms of relationships with say heart disease and the like, um, you know, people in the UK are still at a level of, you know, 13 ish percent saturated fat content. There's been arguments over whether we really need to push it down to 10%. Um, you know, bottom line is the totality of evidence would support replacing that energy with unsaturated fats. Um, but again, where people are consuming diets that are heavily reliant on industry production, it can be difficult to modify that diet. That, that's also reformulation-esque and policy-based.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alan, I-, I could talk for hours. I think probably time is drawn to a close, and maybe I should find out where people can find out a little bit more about you and what you're up to.
1: Yeah, so for now, um, I operate only on Instagram. Uh, I stay away from the lunatic asylum that is Twitter (laughs) for sanity purposes. So you can find me on Instagram at at the nutritional underscore advocate. And then if people follow me there um, and stay tuned, I'll have a website coming out, which is really just aiming to be an education platform, um, addressing kind of broad overarching topics in nutrition and also doing um, a kind of weekly Uh, research review so my goal is really to help with healthcare professionals in their knowledge of nutrition breaking down the science educating along the way um, and hopefully that can be a useful resource for people
0: great well we'll make sure we get a link up for that as well as soon as it appears and um alan thank you so much for taking the time thanks
1: you and thanks for having me
0: Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating that'd be incredibly helpful and any feedback is very welcome and so you can leave comments send email or make contact via twitter facebook and the usual social media channels all of which can be found at blocology.io thanks again